0: Awesome. Oh, so why don't you grab a seat? Oh, what a great start already to the night. I love it. Thanks, guys. Well, tonight we are kicking off as part of our, our 40 Days in the Word. Uh, we are uh, getting into this series and uh, the evening services next four weeks called FAQs Frequently Asked Questions as we, FAYQs was a series we were considering called uh, All Your Frequently Asked, I don't know what that was, but but down here tonight, it's FAQ Frequently Asked for All Your Questions, that's what it was, FAYQ, that was great, we'll do that next year. Um, But we're we're doing one FAQ, and and, and the whole idea here, uh, what we're doing is we, for 40 days as a church, uh, we believe that the Bible is, is this incredible inspired text that we've got that reveals who God is to us. This is what we believe as a church. And that he, across the centuries and across different authors and different situations and through all different kinds of writing, God has revealed who he is to us through the Bible. And so we believe that. And so for the 40 days, this is why we're trying to really sit with God's word and say, you know what, let's focus on being in God's word because as a church we believe that when you just open up the Bible and let it do its thing, it can change your life. It transforms us. We can meet God through his word. So where we come from as a church is we believe in the, the authority, what we call the authority of scripture, that we don't also get to tell the Bible uh, how to behave. We don't get to tell the Bible what we think it should say. We don't get to say to God, you know what, if I was you and I was gonna try and reveal myself to you know, humanity, this is how I would have done it or what I would have said or how I think it should have been. We believe as a church, we don't get to do those things. Our role is to sit under the authority of Scripture. And even though at times it provokes us, at times it, it makes us feel uncomfortable, at times we find ourselves wanting to wrestle or, or almost argue with it, we believe that, that we are to sit with it and engage that conversation and that in the midst of that, God reveals more and more of himself to us and we can know him better. And one of the challenges with the Bible as we uh, approach this as, as a church uh, is we know that there are all kinds of things— that at times become barriers for people to doing what I've just described. That sometimes people, there are people who have at one point in their life said, I, I believe that God is to be found in the Scripture. I believe this word is a, has an authority and that I need to sit under it. But they came to some part of the Bible or some question. And how they'd understood the Bible came into conflict with something else. And it became a barrier for them. And they ultimately end up walking away saying, you know what, I couldn't reconcile what I saw there. I never really understood it. I always had this question. And I thought, you know what, just forget it. I don't know if I can trust it. And there are questions that sometimes become barriers to even engaging with the Scriptures. There are, are others who, who sit outside of, of faith or, 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 or trusting the Bible, and they would look at the Bible and say, you know what? I've heard what it has to say about X, Y, or Z, and I just can't, I can't deal with that. I can't process that. I can't agree with that. So they never even come to the place of actually opening this book up and realizing that actually, as, as sometimes startling, as sometimes confusing, as sometimes uh, just not what we'd expect, that in these pages, you can actually meet the living God. And so what we want to do in this series, I want to just set up this series for us for a moment. Uh, what we are, are trying to do is say, let's look at some of these questions that are those just frequently asked questions, those frequently asked, this became a barrier to me. This, this is actually keeping me from just opening it up and letting it do its thing that, that God wants it to do in my life. We want to address some of these questions and say, you know what? Um, maybe some of those questions don't have to be the barriers that we thought they were. And, and maybe, and, and 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 like I said, it's called Frequently Asked Questions. I, I'm not promising that you're going to get the answers you were looking for, but my hope is that we can look at a, a way to read the Bible where some of those questions don't have to become the barriers we once thought they were. We have a, a, one of the... the the phrases that, as a church, True North Church, we're part of a movement of churches uh, that's existed for, you know, a, a, a long time, over 100 years, called Churches of Christ. And one of the hallmark uh, statements of our movement uh, is this great phrase. And, and it's this phrase In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. What this phrase, the reason I think it's such a wonderful phrase is because it reminds us that there are certain things, as a follower of Christ, if you are going to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm I'm a part of, I'm, I'm a Christian, if you will, there are certain beliefs that are actually essential to that. That have been believed by all Christians and all followers of Christ, regardless of some of the other differences, there is is a set of beliefs that has been held by all Christians for all times and in all places. Those are the essentials. And in our movement, we say on those essentials, we've got to have unity. We've got to be about the same things that are essential. But in non-essentials, there are a, a... a countless list. We're doing four questions. There are hundreds of questions we could, could be doing over this four weeks. There are all kinds of beliefs and things that come from this book that have a, a varied range of how Christians throughout the centuries have answered those questions. Those are what we would call non-essentials. And so as a church, we say that when it comes to non-essentials, there's some liberty. There's some freedom. There's some room to say uh, you and I may answer some of the questions we encounter differently. And if those things are, are, are non-essential, hey, we, we, just, we, we make room for that. We want to always have room for that. And then the last part of that phrase is, in all things, love. In all things, love. And, and that reflects this heart, and this is our, our heartbeat as a church, is that our beliefs, whether they be around those essential things that we hold dear, that are at the very core of what we believe and at the very core of who we are as followers of Christ, or whether they be our beliefs on things that, that are a, a little bit on the side, that are not essential, maybe still important, but non-essential, that, that different people have answered different ways over different times. Whatever your belief is, in all things that we hold, our, our motivation, our, our, our just the way we operate, our heart's attitude must in all things be love. Yeah. Beliefs, opinions, how we answer the different questions, we're never meant to be. Uh, clubs we use to beat one another up with, and, and too often it, it can become that way. I heard someone in my connect group this last week shared this great saying. I thought, and he said, "You know what?" I, I, he said uh, he had heard someone say this once—a friend of his or someone—and and said that they said, "You know what?" I think the reason God's left so many things in the scriptures kind of a, a little bit vague and not quite as clear as we'd want is because he wanted people. He said because he wanted to test people and see if they loved their opinions more than their fellow man. There are so many things in Scripture that, try as we may, they are not as black and white as we would like to think, that there's some room, and there's some different ways people have answered them. And so over this four weeks, in some ways, my hope is, uh, while, while we may not answer, in fact, these are questions that are, are wrestled with, you know, they some of them have been wrestled with across centuries. Some of them, whole books are being written. We will not, I, I know you think Dean, you're a talented and good-looking young man. Uh, Certainly, we can get to the bottom of this in a half an hour. I appreciate your confidence, but we may not get there. So what we are going to do, what my hope is, and even starting tonight, is that we will think about some principles that can guide us, because a lot of the things we're going to be talking about, these are not essentials. And so we're going to be looking at what are some of the things we need to keep in mind as we consider these questions. And they may be some questions that different people in this particular community, and me and you, we may end up answering them a little bit differently, but there's some things I want us just to think about as each of us wrestles with the Scriptures. Does that sound like fun? I hope that sounds like fun. As mentioned earlier, you know, there's a phone number up there. If you've got questions as I talk, uh, I'm going to try tonight now, and I've got got 25 minutes left to do it. I'm going to try tonight, as we address tonight's question, what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? As we address that, I'm going to try and give uh, some frameworks, some thoughts, some things that I think are really good food for thought. As each of us, as as followers of Christ, and I'm speaking primarily to people who you would say, I accept this as an authority in my life. I'm trying to live by it. I'm trying to let it do its thing in my life. I'm speaking primarily to to those people tonight, to to you if that's you. If you're outside that, then this is probably not as as focused to you, and and that's okay. But this is how we wrestle with this as people trying to sit under this. But I want to try and give a little bit of a framework over the next 25 minutes on how to think about this very frequently asked question. Uh, I will not answer every question there is, but I I, want to try and give a framework over a period of time, and then we're going to have 15 minutes where whatever text questions you sent through, uh, we'll we'll go through and, and just give some responses to those. So I I understand, and and I also, one of the challenging things about talking about a a subject like this in a one-way conversation, I may say something, and you might hear it differently than I meant it, or you may think, you know what, wait a second, what exactly did you mean by that? So feel free to text while I'm talking. Feel free to send through questions, and and a little bit later, we're just going to run right through those. So tonight's question, what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? Now this is an incredibly frequently being asked question right now. And it's being asked a lot within the church and in different places because uh, there there are some changes happening in culture at large. There are changes that are happening in in Western countries like Australia around the world. A few weeks ago in the United States, the Supreme Court ruled uh, to recognize same-sex marriage across all 50 states, joining many Western uh, democratic countries that are now recognizing same-sex marriage as legal, which haven't previously. Uh, Here in Australia, there's a a bill that will go before Parliament, many think, this year that will uh, be seeking that same recognition and and legislation around legalizing same-sex marriage. Now, all these changes are prompting a lot of questions. What does the Bible say about this? Prompting questions among uh, people who are trying to live under the authority of this book. Prompting these questions. What does the Bible say about this? And how then, how then should we respond as followers of Christ and as people who are trying to live according to this book. So this is a very, very frequently asked question at the moment. And, I, and as I said, I want to give just a, a little bit of, uh, of, of ideas on where do we even begin with this. And I want to start by, by saying this. that The question... How, what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? When, when I ask that, and the question that's really being asked most frequently right now, is when, it's, when we say same-sex marriage, we mean by the legislation and the recognition of same-sex marriages in culture. This is a question most people are asking. But to answer that question, I think the, the, the first challenge is to realize we actually have to turn that into two questions. There, there are really two separate questions, and, and a lot of times right now they're being asked as if there's only one question, but there's actually two questions. And and the the two questions that we actually, if we're going to form any kind of viewpoint, uh, are this. What does the Bible say about same-sex relationships in general, homosexual relationships? And then we have to ask a second question. What does the Bible say about how a, a, you can put it this way, how a Christian living in the 21st century democratic uh, nation of Australia should respond to its government recognizing uh, same-sex marriages and their, their status in society? Now, those are two different questions. And when we confuse them or think that the answer to one automatically decides the answer to the other, then, then it actually becomes difficult to have a good conversation at all. So what I, I want to do is break this into two questions tonight. Yeah, and, and if you're hoping for a definitive position, uh, Unfortunately, you'll leave disappointed tonight because my goal is not to tell you how you should respond, what your answer to this question be. But my goal will be to give you some things to think about as you wrestle with this on your own. So first question, what does the Bible say uh, about same sex relationships? Uh, And and, and in in particular, what I mean by that is is actual uh, sexual relationships between people of the same gender. Uh, not just talking about an orientation of people, what, sexual re- relationships of people of the same gender. Now, the Bible, uh, here's what, what, how we can kind of summarize it. When you go back uh, through the, the history of, of Christendom and you go to that widest cut that across cultures and countries and, and, and eras and, you know, and, and across the years and across the centuries, uh, historically, the church as a whole, in its broadest sense of that word, has understood the Bible to teach that any sexual activity outside a a lifelong lasting union between a male and a female is what the Bible calls sin. And that's any activity outside that definition. The, the, The phrase that the Bible, the word in the Bible for sin, uh, literally kind of means to miss the mark. And so when the Bible says that, it's saying any sexual activity outside that uh, norm, and I'm not going to go right through the entirety of Scripture and, and how it all gets there. It's also probably not quite as just sort of straightforward. If you're sort of like, which exact verse does that? Uh, I, you know, you, can't, you can point to different verses from which you actually construct that, and a lot of them. And, and across the centuries, script, Christians have always understood that the Bible teaches sexual uh, relationships outside lifelong union of one man and one woman misses the mark of God's intention. So that includes uh, a whole range of ways that human beings can miss that mark and and a whole range of ways uh, that we do all the time. And so for us as a church, uh, we understand we, that this is, this is where the conversation begins. Uh, and so same-sex sexual relationships will fall into that category. Uh, heterosexual sex outside of marriage falls into that category. Uh, sex when, when two people are married and someone has a sexual relationship with someone else falls into that category. All these things miss the mark because we believe God had an intention and a purpose in the way he created it. Now, I want to immediately and quickly say this. It is so important to realize that is not the end of any conversation. Jesus actually, you know, one of the things we miss it, Jesus said this really, really relevant about this uh, in the New Testament. And in fact, just before I get there, one of the things to realize though, the last thing I'll say is we think about, so what does the Bible say about this? I think it's also worth remembering that when we talk about, you know, everything that falls outside of that definition misses God's mark, it's important to realize that uh, in the grand sweep of all the scriptures, 41,000 plus verses, seven explicitly highlight homosexuality as one of the ways that mark is missed. And even of, of those two of them, uh, you know, it is quite a different context completely in what it's talking about. And so it, it's just worth remembering when we say, what does the Bible say about that? It, it doesn't say a lot, but the Bible paints a very clear picture of this intention God has. And how so often we miss the mark when it comes to all of us and how we relate as sexual beings that we've been created to be. Now, Jesus, and now this, the the next thing I want to say on this is to realize this. And this kind of, I think is important to remember. One of the things Jesus said, I cannot stand here. I'm standing here and saying that because uh, I'm acknowledging this is what the scriptures have been understood to say throughout the centuries. Um, And, and, and. And that's what, that's what we're a- acknowledging. But I cannot say that without, in the next breath, having to say this. The Scripture calls uh, so many things that we do missing the mark that we, we cannot ever take that idea and pull it out of its context in the grand picture of Scripture. Jesus, one of the things he said about this, so we're going to go to Luke here, Luke uh, chapter 6, I believe it is. We're going to put that up on the screen. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this. So if we're going to have a conversation, if we're going to even talk about this, we have to take these words into account. Jesus, knowing they, that's uh, that's John, can we get uh, Luke, I believe it's uh, chapter 6. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Going on, well, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Instead, he says, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, the reason I say these are so important and why we have to raise this, because even though I've been, I'm trying to stand here and say, you know, an answer honestly, what does the Bible seem to say about this? But you cannot even say that phrase that the Bible calls it uh, something that misses the mark without also taking into account Jesus' teaching That if we're going to say something is missing the mark, something is sin in someone else's life, we better first consider that the sin in our own life is far worse. And and Jesus is saying, you need to see the sin in your life is far worse than than what you're seeing in someone else's. And all too often, the problem in this conversation is we we end up like, Jesus calls them hypocrites there, because we're so concerned about what we saw in someone else's that when if we're going to be his followers, we should be far more concerned about what's going on in our own life. You know, they, as I said, there's seven verses that, that highlight homosexuality. is one of the ways uh, that, that the mark can be missed. There are, some have estimated, over 3,000 verses in this book that highlight the sins of gluttony, of greed, and apathy towards the poor. 3,000. So you kind of go, what's on God's radar? What, what is he really, like, what really gets him fired up? I mean, what's the kind of stuff he's writing whole books and prophets about? Not the kind of thing that, that's in, in a few places. Not actually. And, and the reason I say that is not to say, again, well, that means it doesn't matter. But notice, say, hey, we've got to understand in context. You know what? God is 3,000 verses on gluttony, greed, and apathy towards the poor. And if there are any sins that seem to define our generation of Christ followers, how could it not be gluttony, greed, and apathy towards the poor? Great. Gluttony that we eat more than our fair share. How many of us will throw away food this week or send something back because we didn't like the way it, it tasted? Greed. Uh, when we look at what we use kind of per person of the, the world's resources, how, how, can we, how can we not say, God, we've got to throw ourselves at your mercy on this? Apathy towards the poor. The, the The world when we, when you think about what will happen today in the developing world, how many children will go without education, health care, how many children will die i mean the, the numbers all stagger us so much that so we don't even like to think about them anymore now i I say all that simply to say we've got to uh, that's not just to again make you feel bad, nor is the comment that the bible. Says this about sexual relationships to make other people feel bad. The whole point is we should all feel bad. We've all got, we've all got serious things wrong with us. That's the story of the scriptures, and our response as Christ follows, If we're gonna have conversation, I just think it's so important because if we're even gonna talk about it. We've got to, in the same breath, if we're going to be so bold and so willing as to say, well, the, uh, that what I see in your life misses the mark, we, we better make sure we first dealt with the plank sticking out of our eye. Because we brought someone here from a different part of the world and, and just said, what do you notice about our lives? What, they would see something in our, that we'd say, well, that's not, that's just kind of, that's the way my culture is, the way my life is. Uh, they would see something very different. And so the, the message of scriptures is we we are all, all. All we can do is hope. How do we sleep well at night? How, how do we? Because we're throwing ourselves on grace, and we're, we're, we're just trying to, in God's mercy, allow him to do something in our hearts and our lives. So that, that's our starting point, and, and, and so I want to start there. So that's, in a nutshell, what the Bible says on this issue, uh, and, and, and that's a, a framework for how it's been understood over the centuries. A, a sketch, and, and not incredibly thorough, but that's, that's the basics. And I think that needs to color how we even talk about it. Now the second question, and maybe the more pressing, uh, is this question. Um, how then should a, a Christ follower respond uh, to the, the recognition and the legislation that's going forward to recognize same-sex marriages as having you know, kind of full legal status? And, and on this question... All I can say is I'm not here to tell you exactly how you should respond. I want to give you uh, about five things to reflect on and to think about. when you, Because just because we think that doesn't mean the answer should automatically be X, Y, or Z. And so everyone of us, I think, kind of has to wrestle with this. It's not quite as clear cut as we sometimes might like it to be. And I want to give you five things to think about. I say about five because it may turn out to be three, it may be four, it may be seven. Uh, if you've been here in the mornings, they've been... You know, preaching with these wonderful outlines with clearly numbered things. Uh, that's not how my brain works, so um, I didn't even try to make one. I'm, we'll just see how we go. The, the first thing that I think is really important to remember, if you're going to think about it, so how should I respond as a Christian? Uh, one of the things you should probably factor into that thought process, and, and, and the reason I say the scriptures aren't incredibly clear on this, the scriptures do not speak to a context uh, like ours. Whatever you read in the Old Testament is is primarily being written to Israel as the people of God, a people uniquely chosen throughout all of time in history that they were to reflect uh, who God was. They were a monarchy for the time that they even had a clear government. They spent most of their life in exile. It's a completely different situation. The the New Testament, the church grew up under the emperor of Rome, who was seen not as a a, uh, You know, a parliamentary official who could be, you know, persuaded to different points of view. He was the emperor of Rome. He was seen as a god in their culture, literally. And he he was angry that Christians would even call Jesus God because he was supposed to be the only god. This is a little bit different context. So what we have to do is look at the broad sweep of the New Testament and say, how in light of what it says about how to simply live as a Christian, how do we engage with this issue? And different people will come to different responses on that the first thing that I think we should though all factor wherever we land on that question we should factor in this idea just kind of remember that the role of a democracy such as we live in the role the goal of it is to reflect the will of the people a, a democracy is 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 there to reflect the, the whole reason they got started imperfectly as they do it the role of a democracy is to reflect the will of the people the role of the church is to reflect the will of God. The church has been called to reflect the will of God in this world. I love what Paul says on this. And we see this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is, says these words, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside. There, there's a principle here, and you can put that up if, if you have it there, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 12 and 13. There, there's this principle here. Uh, when we read the New Testament, we need to remember he's, these are words, these are commands. The the word of God is written to us as to how we are to, those of us who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, this is how you're to live. And I think sometimes it's easy to begin to think that that the role of the church is is to uh, try and get the democracy to reflect the will of God. Government will never reflect the will of God. And I think we should be careful of ever trying to push those things too quickly because it will always be flawed. It's flawed enough and broken enough in the church. And, in their, and so I think one of the things that's just helpful to remember, some people will feel they need to state their case and persuade an, an official or people. Some people will say, no, it's not my role at all. But what we all should remember in the way we engage with it is at the end of the day, a democracy is there to reflect the will of the people. And the church is here to try and say, in this countercultural community, we are striving, however brokenly, to reflect the will of God. That's, that's our call. Now, second thing I think is uh, worth factoring into our, our thoughts on this uh, as, we, as we work through what our response uh, is. It, and this is just a, a little... Phrase that I think is just worth remembering that transformation beats legislation. I think whether you want to push for legislation or not, we should never lose sight of the fact that transformation beats legislation every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Transformation is what Jesus was all about. Jesus, you know, in his time, uh, Jesus, the people following him were constantly trying to thrust political power on him. You know, in in those verses in John, it says at one point the people came wanting to make him king by force. And what did he do? Yes, let's go. Let's sort this thing out. No, it says he slipped away in their midst. When Pilate asked Jesus about his kingdom, about his power, Jesus said these famous words, my kingdom is not of this world. What Jesus came to do was not to try to fix the world by imposing a new moral standard. Jesus came to transform hearts and lives. You know, the Bible, when it talks about what Jesus does in our lives, it says we become a new creation, a new creation. We're to become a brand new person. And when we become this new person, transformation takes place over time and at different speeds and in different ways for each one of us. But what Jesus came to do was to bring transformation. And if we've got to throw our weight behind any idea as being powerful, it's got to be that transformation beats legislation every time. You can never form rules or laws that will usher people into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not of this world. I love the, the last thing I'm saying. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I think that's who said this, but it's this great phrase. He said, you know, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. He, he came to absolutely change the state of who we are to transform us into completely new beings. The, the third thing I'll say. So uh, is this. Is, I think it's important to remember that just as uh, transformation beats legislation, uh, conversations beat proclamations. Conversations beat proclamations. If we're going to try and, again, even see transformation happen in anyone's life, I think we do it far better through conversations than proclamations. I- I'm in some ways violating my own rule here tonight because I don't think this is the best way to actually talk about this. But I just want to help us think about it. Because the thing about a proclamation, and when you make this proclamation of this is what God says, and it may be true, but the proclamation may be absolutely useless for trying to help someone understand it. Whereas in a conversation, in a conversation, you're able to actually meet person to person, which I think is how Jesus wanted things to happen in relationship, looking into one another's you know, eyes, sitting around the table. Jesus didn't come and just make these bold proclamations. He sat around the table with all kinds of people, and he engaged in a lot of conversations, and he saw people's lives transform. And I think it's, it's kind of helpful to remember, you know, conversations beat proclamations. Uh, fourth, I think this is, this is, uh, this is an important, a really important one to remember. And that's just that if we are going to be the people of God, whatever our view and take is on this, we have a call as the people of God to always stand with and stand for the marginalized and the oppressed. We have, we have a call to stand with those who have been pushed to the side and pushed down and who've been hurt and broken in life. And you see always in the Old Testament this is, this incredible heartbeat of God for the alien for the person who was not from Israel who came from the outside who didn't measure up and who didn't fit the mold and God always makes provision and and there has always been a call the heartbeat of God for those who have been alienated in society pushed to the sides pushed to the margins and I think some would say oh well this is different because it's a a moral thing can I tell you something just just a a real quick snapshot here um have you ever if you ever looked at in fact maybe I'll just do it this way look up sometime the statistics on mental health and people who identify uh, as a, as a same same sex orientation they the 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 numbers of rates of, of suicide of depression staggering compared to the society at large do you know what and you know what they say the two biggest factors in that in the, in the the, the, the the just challenges are exclusion and discrimination in other words there's this percentage of society who 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 have this experience of life and it it actually pushes them because they are feel so excluded and so pushed down and so discriminated against it 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 is verifiably pushing them towards self-harm depression and suicide at times because of how they're treated And no matter what we think about it, you cannot get around the fact that this is a group of people who feel pushed to the margins and excluded in our culture. And we have a responsibility as followers of Christ to love and to care for those people and to never be a part of them feeling pushed to the side and excluded. We have a responsibility to recognize that's our call. It's the body of Christ, and so we can take. I thought this was an interesting thing when the Supreme Court decision came out. You know, there was, uh, you know, two quick, and it was right here across Australia. It's in the U.S., but you just saw this right across Australia in the world of Facebook. There were these two quick reactions. Some people, uh, and this is around the world and in the U.S. and in Australia, and all these places. You know, there was one. You know, believers. You know, kind of decrying what has happened. And, and upset about it. Uh, another group of followers of Christ whose Facebook pictures all, you know, had the rainbow uh, symbolically now placed over their, their icon as a way of standing with them. And then within hours was now the backlash against the Christians who had put rainbows on their, on their stage saying, do you, how can you do that? Don't you know what the Bible says on that? And people, can I tell you, you, you know, you may not decide to, to turn your, your Facebook icon rainbow colored or you may feel differently than that. But we as a church, I believe, will always have a responsibility and have to give an account of how did we stand with them. How did we stand with people who had been pushed to the side and have felt marginalized and beaten down for so long? How are we going to do that? Whether you oppose the legislation or not, we can't get around that responsibility that every one of us has to take. Seriously, I believe, as people who live under this book. The last thing I'll say so it's five if you're taking notes. Uh, <laughs> is it transformation? We're gonna go back to transformation for a minute. Transformation happens best inside out and not outside in. Transformation, and if this is what we're after, it happens best inside out and not outside in. And what I mean by that is that if we try to uh, impose a standard and say, once this gets in order, now you can come inside. Transformation doesn't work well that way. Transformation works, we believe in this book, by inviting people to know Christ, inviting people to let him into their life, inviting them to allow Christ to make them new and to let that transformation happen inside out. And can I tell you something? We also don't get the liberty of determining the speed at which that transformation should happen in one another's life. We don't get to say how quickly transformation should happen in their life or even what areas transformation should be happening in one another's lives. If you are close with someone, they've invited you into their inner circle, then you've got a right to speak into their life if they invite that. But we don't, as people standing at a distance from one another, even in the same church, we don't get the right to say, hey, I see what's wrong in your life. I think God probably wants to work on this because that's not our job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works from the inside out, not the outside in. And I think it's kind of helpful just to remember that because we've got to always be looking at how. And here's my, here's my last here's my, my, my question I'll, I'll leave you with, uh, a, a question I think that should be frequently asked when it comes to this: As you formulate your view on this? Uh, as you work out how will I respond to what's happening in culture and in parliaments and in legislation, as you work that out, one of the best questions you can ask is, what do I hope to achieve by what I'm saying or doing? What am I, what am I hoping is going to happen? Uh, and, and if we ran, you know, and my point is this, it's, it's better to make a difference than, than to make a point, right? Wouldn't we all rather make a difference in the world than make some kind of point about what we think is right? And whenever we're going to talk about this and whenever we're going to open our mouths about it or whenever we're going to write something or if you're, you know, heaven help us, going to post something about it, please think, what am I hoping will happen here? And is it what Jesus would want to happen? How is, it, how is this a part of what he's wanting to do in this world? These are, they are tricky questions. And, and they are, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're not. I, I, I probably did explain it, really. Maybe it's not a tricky question. Maybe, no, I'm just joking. Um, they're tricky questions. And what I think we need to do is make sure, uh, when it comes again, just to return to kind of circle back where we began, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. There are lots of ways different people are, are answering this question. and non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love, in all things, however we wrestle this one down, we cannot escape the mandate to love. And I think it's important that we as a church know uh, and and remember, and we're gonna sing a song, I'm gonna invite the band actually out, we're gonna sing a song here in just a moment. And we're gonna sing this song that is the Apostles' Creed. And, And can I tell you, the Apostles' Creed, if, if ever there was one, you know, kind of place where the absolute essentials were captured and it's been used going back to, uh, to, to when the Apostles' Creed first began in those early centuries of the church. I can't even remember when. It's one of the oldest, uh, you know, kind of pieces of what are the essentials. The Apostles' Creed was what all the apostles uh, uh, agreed upon. We're going to sing these words. I'll, I'll read it to you just for a moment. It says, this, it says, the Apostles' Creed is this, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We can disagree on a lot of things, but we hold on to that. And that's, that's the doorway. That, that's the way into the Christian life. And wherever people's answers land on other things, we will always, uh, when it comes to, I mean, the, the, we will always live as a church with a, a door that just says, welcome. Wherever you're at, you're welcome here. You're welcome. And what we will point people to over and over and again and again is that truth of who Jesus is. And we never want to set up anything else that becomes a roadblock and a barrier to keeping people from that truth right there. So, we're gonna sing these words together, and I just encourage you as you sing them, just remember this is wherever, whatever you disagree with me about, or whatever you know, you disagree with what you've heard tonight, wherever we say, this is what we come back to as a church. This is what we are all about. Let's stand and let's sing together.